Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. As we open your word, feed us. Give us what we need, even though we don't know what we need. But you do. So we humbly ask for your provision. Not just with stuff, or food, or drink, but for life, for our soul. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever. Amen. All right, so we're in Colossians 4, verses 10 through 11. We're going to skip verses 12 and 13 today. Totally weird, I know. But we're going to skip verses 12 and 13 and hop right into 14. So 10, 11, and 14. Uh, the reason we're skipping 12 and 13, I'll explain that in a second. And we'll get back to verses 12 and 13 along with the rest of Colossians in November. And the reason we'll do that in November is because I'm not, after today, I'm not preaching again until November. So there are three more Sundays left in October. Pastor Christian will preach three sermons in a row. He's going to preach the rest of October. That was intentional. Brian and I thought it was important, not for many reasons, uh, give him opportunities to preach, give him uh, more than an opportunity to just do one sermon at a time, but to develop a sermon idea, develop ideas throughout week after week of preaching. It is something that Pastor Christian had done regularly when he lived in Montana. He hasn't had that much of an opportunity to do it here Although he has, we try to give him as many opportunities as we can for him to preach to you. And uh, he's going to be starting a, a series in the book of Jonah. So every time he preaches, he will be preaching from Jonah. And then when I return to the pulpit in November, uh, we'll finish Colossians. And then we will start a new book of the Bible, which I don't know yet. So be praying about that because I don't know what God has for you from his word after <coughs> Colossians. So... Be praying about that. Um, I will be gone tomorrow through Friday. I'm going to Boston with my family. Uh, we will be back next Sunday, so you won't even notice. <laughs> Unless you go to Bible studies and Christians teaching instead of me. So, um, with that said, we're in verses 10 through 11 and verse 14. And today's text concerns five men. Really six men, but we're skipping one of them. And we'll get into him later. And what we see in their lives, in these five men's lives, are examples of faithful, Christ-centered, gospel-oriented living. So there is this great encouragement in these men's stories, as well as, in one of them, a very grave warning. And what we'll see most in these men is the difference between those who are faithful and those who are not. And the difference between those who are faithful and those who are not is the hope, that word is key, the hope 
of the gospel, which is revealed in sacrificial living. So we're in verses 10, verse 10. We'll start there. Paul writes, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. So it's not Jesus the Messiah. It's a common name in the first century. Jesus called Justice. And he says, These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. And then in verses 12 through 13, he talks about Epaphras. We'll get to him later. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So there are six Christian men, and these men are all servants of Christ. Three of them are Jews. We see Paul mentions Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus Justice. We're going to just call him Justice from now on to avoid any confusion. We know they are Jews and that the others are not. Those first three guys are Jews because Paul says in verse 11, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And that idea of these are the men of the circumcision indicates that they've been circumcised, which means that they are Jewish men. So that's just another way of calling them Jews. The other three of the six men are Gentiles. Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. This mix of Jews and Gentiles who are spreading the gospel. What this does, you got three Jews and three Gentiles, and Paul's validating each of them, Jews and Gentiles, revealing what Paul writes in some of his letters, which is that the mystery of the gospel is that Christ saves not according to nationality, not according to gender, not according to race, not according to where you grew up or how, or as Christian taught us this morning, not according to how worthy you may or may not be. But Christ saves whomever the Father wills for him to save, as he says in John 6, regardless of your background, past, or experience, or who you are, or where you're from. So let's start with Aristarchus. Paul is the first Jewish man that Paul mentions. He was with Paul. Aristarchus was with Paul in Ephesus. And like Tychicus, he stayed faithful to Paul and the mission of the gospel throughout all of Paul's sufferings and all of Paul's persecutions there. And Luke is mentioned here as well. And this is the same Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke and wrote the book of Acts from which we get, the book of Acts is where we get most of this historical material. So both Aristarchus and Luke, they both travel with Paul to Jerusalem, and they also sailed with Paul from Caesarea to Rome, and that's important because what we know is that there was sufferings in those travels, and that these men also suffered along with Paul in some of these trials, and yet they did not waver, and they did not abandon Paul or the mission to spread the gospel throughout the known world. And therefore, because of Aristarchus's devotion to Paul, Paul grants Aristarchus this title in verse 10, fellow prisoner, which literally translates fellow prisoner of war. Now it's likely that Aristarchus voluntarily, which is a key word, voluntarily shared in Paul's captivity. 
And they thought of themselves as soldiers of Christ. I mean, look at the way that Paul describes the Christian life over and over again. There's always this athletic theme, right? Finish the race, fight the good fight. Like a boxer, I beat my body into submission. There's always this like athletic analogy that works so well with the Christian life. And another athletic analogy is being a soldier. Soldiers, to be a good soldier, Athleticism is absolutely required, and Paul is saying that we're soldiers of Christ, and therefore it's natural that in our captivity we consider ourselves prisoners of war, because we're at war with the enemy, and we're at war for hearts to come to Christ. And so, if a soldier is willing to die for their country, how much more should a soldier of Christ be willing to follow their leader, Jesus, into death as he himself went to death? And Jesus said twice in the Gospels, it's recorded, I think, six or seven times throughout all four Gospels, but twice in his life, at least recorded twice in his life, he says this, and I'll quote it from Luke 9.24, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. American believers today will say that this ought to be true of us. We would agree, we would believe this. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We know that's true. It's not so much our experience in the comfort of the American life, but for the first century believers, this was a common occurrence. And thus, To believe it is one thing, but to live it is another. And only those who are willing to stretch to the fullest extent of obedience will genuinely find life in Christ. Which is why today there are churches filled with false converts. Because the genuineness of their faith has not been tested At least not like those in the first century. We look at 1 Peter 1, 6-7, and Peter confirms that this is a reality that all believers must endure. Not some believers. It's not like, well, anyone who lives in America in the 21st century doesn't have to go through this. That's not a qualification in 1 Peter 1, 6-7. What he says is he brings to light this idea that staunch obedience to the word is the means by which The genuineness of our faith is tested. And Peter says this. He says, in this, so first of all, what's the this? This is the first, the the few verses before that, verses three through five, where Peter describes everything God is doing to save you and to preserve you. And if you read those verses, you'll notice that human beings are not mentioned at all in those verses. All it is is God does the work, God does the saving, and then once God does the powerful, sovereign work of electing you and saving you, he then also preserves your salvation, and you aren't mentioned at all. And then we get to verse uh, 6, and he says, in this, so in this powerful work of God, you rejoice. That's where we finally show up. What's our response to God sovereignly saving us and preserving us? Rejoice. And then he goes on, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved 
by various trials. So why have we been grieved by various trials? He says, so that, so here's the reason, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Meaning, the reason for trials in life is so that your faith will be tested by fire. Life, for the believer, after you're justified, begins a sanctifying process. And sanctification, another biblical word for sanctification, is fire. The rest of your life is a fire. And it is a fire that is going to do one thing for the believer, is going to melt off and burn off your flesh. And after the fire's done and sanctification is over and this life comes to an end, the only thing that will stand good before God is Christ in you. The only thing that can't be burnt off by the fire, by the tested genuineness of your faith, the only thing that preserves or, 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 or makes it through the fire is Christ because your flesh will be gone. And if what's left is Christ, then this is your reality. The result is praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you don't have Christ, what's left is nothing. Nothing of value and nothing of worth. Because as we learned this morning during communion, the only thing that's worthy is Christ. This is a distant reality for many who claim to be in Christ. Yet, it was very common, extremely common in the first century, right? Like, and though we may think that our comfort that we live with and the lack, there's a, a significant lack of extreme suffering in our lives, right? And don't get me wrong. Don't think that I'm telling you that you're not faithful because you don't have extreme suffering. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that because we have comfort and there is a lack of extreme suffering in our lives, it kind of feels like, and I think Christians in America at least, and other countries too, it's not just America, we're not the only country with comfort, okay, and with luxuries and with a lack of extreme suffering where we can freely express our faith without any persecution for the most part. But what, has, what develops over time because of that is this idea that we don't really have to prepare for the way Scripture describes the Christian life. Because when Scripture describes a Christian life, it looks so hard. And it's like, well, my Christian life isn't hard. But the reason Scripture speaks this way for the first century believer is not just because it was their lot in life, but because it will be, it will be, the lot in the life of believers who will be around during the tribulation and near the end of times. And not only that, but for those of us who live in comfortable, luxurious, rather easy countries where there's not, no persecution for being a Christian, we have that comfort, but there are thousands of Christians all over the world who are being murdered for Jesus today. 
So it's not, it's not just a first century thing. It's not just an end times thing. It's a now thing. But for many of us, we don't have that experience. So what happens is we get comfortable with our Christianity and then we start to read the Bible and go, that's so funny because my life doesn't feel like the way scripture describes the Christian life. Well, because we're not persecuted the way they were. But I can tell you from experience that it's not external persecution that's the issue with Christians who live in comfortable places. The issue is our lack of extreme obedience. That's really, that's really where the rubber hits the road for us. I guarantee you, if you press into obedience more and more, you will lose friends. You will be ridiculed. You will look like a radical. That's what they'll call you, radical. They'll think you're crazy. I used to serve at a church, and I'm not even kidding you. I used to serve at a church, and there was this guy. So it was me. I had like five pastors on staff. I was one of five pastors. It was a big, big, big church. And uh, there was a, another pastor in a local community who would come over and talk to us occasionally. And this guy was so, so into Jesus. I mean, he was just, I don't know what else to describe. He just, he did every, like, he was just one of the best Christians I've known. Honestly, I kind of looked up to him. I was like, I want to be more like that guy. And so some of the pastors on staff, when he would leave, would make fun of him. And they would call him, and I quote, oversaved. And I was like, how can you be oversaved? <laughs> like, that doesn't even make sense. And, and so like, just, and that's just a little bit of ridicule, but like when you live according to scripture, it's going to look different. And I really do believe this with all the conviction in my heart. It will look very different from the American church, the general idea of the American church or the American believer. And we think of extreme suffering as normal in Scripture, but not normal for us. But historically, Speaking, throughout all of the world, extreme Christian suffering is the norm. American comfort is an anomaly. And I do believe it is one of the means by which, when we look at Matthew 24, and, and I don't want to get into end time stuff here, but when we look at scripture, Matthew 24 is one of them, but many other texts that kind of reveal that there are going to be a lot of people who think they're saved when Christ returns and Jesus says, and then they'll say to Jesus, I did this in your name, and I did that in your name. And go, I don't know you. The, the path is narrow that leads to life. Which is crazy because there are, according to their own self-proclamations, millions upon millions upon millions of Christians in the world. That's not few and that's not narrow. I'm not like sitting here being like, all the other churches and all the other Christians aren't saved like we are. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is press into the word, press into obedience. And what we find is this command from Jesus in Matthew 24, 42, where we are kind of warned about how important it is that we are ready for him. Jesus says, stay awake. That's a command. Stay awake. Another way of saying stay awake is look up. 
Be ready, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. That means always be vigilant in obedience. Since we're commanded to be ready at all times for the imminent return of Christ, be vigilant in obedience. As an increase in obedience will result in an increase in suffering. It's the natural product of life. It is the supernatural reality revealed to us in Scripture. The increase in obedience will be an increase in hard things in life. Because obedience will require sacrifice and sacrifice will cause difficulty. And the reason I know that's true is because if you look at Jesus' life, he was perfectly obedient and he had the most suffering ever. The reality is that the, the obedience is a constant resistance to temptation. And the reason we don't suffer as much, one of the reasons is because we don't live in a place where we're persecuted for worshiping Jesus. So that's a reality. But there's also this other biblical reality that the reason we don't suffer as much, and I would agree that none of us enjoy suffering, right? Even though the Bible tells us to rejoice in our suffering, but the reason why is the reason. Christ is the reason, not the suffering itself. But the reason that obedience causes suffering is because it's hard to endure temptation. It's hard to resist temptation and endure the pressure that temptation brings. And that's why Jesus' life was so hard. Because he resisted every temptation and he endured every temptation to its maximum pressure. Whereas we in our sinful flesh get tempted and we might resist and resist and resist. But eventually when we give in to sin, that pressure of temptation crushes us and we give in and we sin. So we haven't faced the difficulty of the fullness of obedience because we gave into sin before we finished obeying. And therefore, we don't suffer as much. Whereas scripture tells us, no, your responsibility as believers is to, is to bear that burden and that weight and endure that temptation and don't give into sin and obey all the way. And if you do, it's gonna feel like Christ's life. It's gonna hurt, it's gonna get heavy, it's gonna be difficult. And so what we need to do is develop the habit and practice that is the confidence that comes from enduring and increasing obedience. And we get that confidence and that practice and that habit under our belts. We will learn how to endure the hardships that come with what people would call extreme obedience. Okay? And therefore, when the end comes, if we're around for the end... We'll be ready. We'll be awake for the Lord. And that's what we learn from Aristarchus. But then Paul mentions another guy, Mark, whom he calls the cousin of Barnabas. Now, Barnabas, the idea that Mark is related to Barnabas is huge because what this does is it adds weight to Mark's ministry as Barnabas was like a well-known companion of Paul's and he was a faithful minister and evangelist. And Barnabas' ministry was so powerful that 
And the Holy Spirit was so effective in Barnabas' ministry that while Paul and Barnabas were in Lystra, Paul healed a crippled man and the people were so blown away by what happened, they literally thought Barnabas was Zeus and they tried to worship him. So naming Mark as Barnabas' cousin, what it does is it validates Mark's ministry. And there was another reason for this validation. Twelve years before that event happened where they thought that Barnabas was Zeus, twelve years before that, Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas. And then twelve years later, they're in Lystra, the city of Lystra. Paul and Barnabas, Paul heals the crippled man. They think Barnabas is Zeus. They try to worship him. Paul's like, no, the Jews show up and they go, these guys are false teachers and they stone Paul nearly to death. And when they leave, Barnabas wanted to bring Mark, his cousin, with him and Paul did not because Mark abandoned them years before. And so Paul and Barnabas had what Luke calls in Acts 15.39 a sharp disagreement. And then Barnabas departed with Mark, his cousin, Paul went, to, went on with Silas. And then there's another reason why Mark needs to be validated. Because Mark is John Mark, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And so there needs to be more validation because what the church knows is Mark left Paul. And then Barnabas and Paul had a sharp disagreement over Mark. Mark looks like a problem. And Paul's like, no, 12 years later, writes his letter to the Colossians and to Philemon, and he goes, no, no, Mark's good. We're good. And Mark needed that validation, cousin of Barnabas, author of Scripture, because his word has to be believed. And Mark's gospel was probably already in circulation at this point, so these are huge words for the church that Mark is validated. And clearly, Paul and Mark, they're on better terms, obviously, because he gets accommodation in Colossians and also in Philemon. And what we learn from this is that the same thing we learn about Philemon and Onesimus, which we talked about last week. If a brother is faithful, despite what they've done in the past, don't treat him like an outsider. Don't treat him like an unbeliever. If people are repentant, and they ask for forgiveness, Jesus says, forgive them. Well, what if they do it again? And they do it again, and I shouldn't trust them, and I, I shouldn't forgive them. Jesus says, forgive them. And then they do it again, forgive them. And they do it again, forgive them. And when do we stop, Jesus? Never! But Jesus, they clearly don't mean it. Doesn't matter. You don't mean it either, and I still forgive you. <laughs> and the only reason you can mean it is because I make you mean it, right? So, like, we forgive because it's an expression of the gospel. And this is why Paul writes in Colossians 10, I'm sorry, Colossians 4:10 about Mark. He says, "If he comes to you, welcome him." Verifying that Mark is now in line with the gospel and the advancement of the gospel, giving his ministry and his gospel writing the authority that it needs. Now, Paul's going to send this letter to the Colossians in the hands of Tychicus, which we learned about back in verse uh, seven. He's going to send this letter to the Colossians along with a letter to Philemon. And Tychicus is going to take it. 
And so we know that these letters are written together, Philemon and Colossians. And then what we find in Philemon is that five of the six men mentioned here in Colossians are also mentioned in Philemon at the end of the letter just as a final farewell greeting. Hey, these guys send their greetings as well. And the one who's not mentioned in Philemon but is mentioned here in Colossians is Justice, Jesus who is called Justice. Now we don't know why, and honestly, any attempt to try to figure it out is purely speculation, so we're not going to do that. But what we can do is determine three truths about justice according to verse 11. Number one, he's a believing Jew. Number two, he's a fellow worker for the kingdom of God. And number three, he was a comfort to Paul. Sometimes, like that's all we know about the guy. There's not much else to talk about. Sometimes, God may not be calling you to be the one who makes a world of difference for the kingdom of God. Sometimes, God may be calling you to encourage and to comfort those who are. And in that work, God is honored. Like faithfulness comes in all shapes and sizes. So seek out how God is calling you to faithfulness. It may be big or it may be small, but in God's eyes, it all serves his glory. And the reward will be that this work, for this work that you do, no matter how big or how small, the reward will be for you the same reward that Christ gets for his perfect faithfulness. Because that is the beauty of Christ, is that he makes us one with him and we receive the same reward as Jesus because he will share it with us. Even if you're a no-name, non-praised servant of Christ who does nothing, to, nothing of worth mentioning, nothing seen, nothing glorious, nothing big, you don't write any books. I mean, honestly, I know so many pastors who are in two different camps. One camp is the camp of, I just want to be famous, well-known, renowned, preach at big conferences, write big books, and I know a lot of pastors like that. And I know other pastors who don't even think about that or care about it, and they're just committed to their local small church. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a pastor who has a larger influence. It's just extremely rare. And I was listening to Paul Washer, who said, think about the reward that there is for the pastor who serves his church of 50 for 50 years, right? The faithfulness of that. And so, like, I, just as a pastor, because my position is seen, more seen, pastors are in a position, or, or, or teachers, not just pastors, but preachers and teachers and people who have more noticeable positions, have this temptation to want praise and glory and honor and renown and a name for themselves. And you might want that too. And you know what? That's, there's no difference between wanting that renown and, and, and you doing a minuscule task at the church and just wanting to be... No one even said thank you to me for my service to the church. No one praised me. No one said thank you. We have to recognize
that God calls most Christians to do very unnoticeably faithful things. And in that there is great reward. Now, that's the, those are the Jewish men who are with Paul. Now Paul gets to the, his Gentile companions, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. And we'll cover Epaphras in November. So I'll give you a little bit about Luke, but mostly we're going to talk about Demas to finish. We already addressed that this is the Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. Now Luke joined the apostles in their ministry in Troas, according to Acts 16, 6 through 10. So much of what Luke records in the first 15 books of, 15 chapters of Acts was probably communicated to Luke by other apostles, probably mostly Philip. However, then we hear, then, then we get a firsthand account from Luke at the, from Acts 16 to the end of the book. So when Paul and Silas were imprisoned in Philippi for casting out a demon out of a slave girl, Luke was their comfort in jail, which was needed because that comfort led to Paul and Silas singing, pray, singing songs and praying out loud, which led to the conversion of the jailer in Philippi. Colossians 4.14 is also the reason why we know Luke is a doctor, because Paul calls him the beloved physician. And as we read Luke's writings, you can see why he's a doctor as he renders the retelling of history with incredible accuracy and attention to details. And so Luke is an example of one whose faithful service to God is well-known and famous. He's the opposite of some of these other characters. And yet, to Paul... Luke is just another man briefly mentioned at the end of a letter. Why? Because Luke isn't special. Well, we would say, that's why he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. You know that Luke wrote, how do I word this? Luke is the, the one author in scripture who wrote the most in the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 letters. Luke only wrote two books. And Luke wrote the most in the New Testament. So he is incredibly important to the church. And Paul's just like, oh, Luke, the beloved physician, he greets you. He gives him no, no more. Doesn't praise him, doesn't talk about him, doesn't give us this long. He says more about Tychicus than he does about Luke. Because Luke's not special. And as I often say, if you know this from Numbers 22, God spoke through a donkey in Numbers 22. He spoke through Balaam's donkey. If God can speak through a donkey, that ought to remind us that we aren't that special just because God speaks through us. Meaning, if instead of your ministry being small, it's large and massively impactful to the kingdom, then the character that God wants to draw out of you the most is not the proud feeling of, look what I'm doing for the Lord, but a humility that comes from recognizing I still haven't done what Christ has done. And the only reason I can do what I do is because Christ has already done it. And maybe God isn't using you as you'd hope he would by now, 
because he's looking for that humility first. Paul talks about that humility in 2 Corinthians 12 when he says, God put a thorn in my side to keep me humble. Now, we get to the last character. Demas. You're thinking, what more, what could there, what, what else could there be, could there be to say about Demas? Listen to everything that Paul says about Demas. As does Demas. <laughs> That's it. That's all he says. Paul, or Luke greets you, as does Demas. What does Demas, what, what, just, Demas greets you. That's it. That's all we hear here. So what more could there be to say about Demas in There's actually quite a bit, and I'll tell you why. Paul writes this letter to the Colossians and to Philemon at the same time, right? So in both letters, he mentions Demas with these other guys as sending their greetings. So these two letters, Colossians and Philemon, tell us nothing about Demas other than his greeting. And that's these are two of the three times that Demas is mentioned in Scripture. But the third time he's mentioned in Scripture serves for us as a warning. Paul writes these letters to the Colossians and Philemon, and in these letters, Demas is considered a brother in Christ. So what happens is, a few years later, Paul writes his second letter to Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 4.9, he tells Timothy, Hey, Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. I need you by me, Timothy. Why does Paul want Timothy's company? Verse 10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas abandoned Paul, and not in the way that Mark abandoned Paul, because Mark's abandonment was not out of unbelief. Mark wasn't chasing the pleasures of the world. Mark just felt led somewhere else, and Paul saw it as abandonment. And maybe Mark was wrong. It seems likely that Mark was wrong when he left Paul. But Mark wasn't leading the faith, in a sense. He wasn't chasing the world. Demas was. And Demas proved to be, as Jesus says in Luke 8, 14, a seed that fell among the thorns. And Jesus says in Luke 8, 14, as he shares the parable of the seeds, one of the seeds fell in the thorns. And Jesus says, as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, so hear the gospel, but as they go on their way, they are choked by cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. They are not believers, and they never were. Let Demas and let Jesus' parable of the sower be a warning to us that the world will offer pleasure. And let me tell you, Satan is a lion, as Peter describes him. Lion in wait under the tall grass where you can't see him. And if we are not diligent in the word, we will not see him in the grass. And he is not looking for someone to play with. He's not looking for someone, you know, he's not just a big playful cat. You ever see those, I see those videos sometimes where there are these like lion trainers, like there's that one show on Netflix, right? 
and that guy like plays with tigers and lions and they like roll around on the ground together. I'm like, I think Christians, that's how Christians treat Satan. Like, ah, Satan, what are you? You're nothing. You're nothing, Satan. I have Christ and he's better than you. I don't have to worry about you. If that were true, Jesus wouldn't talk about him all the time. Jesus mentions the word God twice, in, I mean more than once, but twice in Scripture, referring, he refers to two persons as God in Scripture. His father and Satan. Little g. Because he calls him the God of this world. He's the prince of this world. And his power is far beyond your imagination. And I literally mean that. Far beyond your imagination. And if he's nothing compared to God, how great is God? Right? And so we really just kind of like don't think about Satan as that big of a deal. Because we know truth, right? Satan's conquered. His end is fixed. He's done for. He has no power over me. I have Christ in me. And Jesus literally said, greater, Jesus is greater in us than he who's in the world. I don't remember who said it. Anyways, it's in scripture. So, so we kind of like, as Christians, are like, I'm good then. I don't have to worry about Satan. But Jesus doesn't tell you, don't worry about Satan. I took care of him already. Or I'll take care of him eventually. Don't worry. I'm going to die on the cross, rise from the grave. He's done for. Jesus warns us about Satan. This morning, right before, we pre- right before I, I preached, I prayed. And what did I pray? I prayed the Lord's Prayer. And what does Jesus say in the Lord's Prayer? Deliver us from the evil one. There are a few things that Jesus says you should pray for. Just a few. And he teaches you how to pray. And in the, when he teaches you how to pray, he says, Watch out for Satan! And Peter's like, he is a lion waiting in the tall grass looking for someone to not play with, not kind of kitty cat with and paw at. And, you know, he's just going to prance around you and sometimes he'll knock you down. You get knocked down. Oh, Satan, you knocked me down, but I can't be hurt because I have Christ in me. No, Peter says he's looking for someone to devour. He wants to eat you alive. He wants to kill you and murder you. Think about the kind of heart that someone must have to love murdering people. Like a human being who's a serial killer is somebody that we all look at like, you're a monster. And they are nothing compared to Satan. He is the description of wickedness. He is the fullness of all that opposes the perfect holiness of God. He is evil wrapped up in one person. And that evil, wrapped up in one person, has power far beyond what you have. Far beyond your human capabilities. And the only reason he can't send you to hell is because of Christ in you. So we have to balance these realities that Satan can't, Satan can't ruin me if I have Christ. And I don't have to be afraid of Satan, but Jesus also says, watch out because he's looking to kill you. And he is way more deceptive than we are clever. And that is why we have to be in the word. Because the only information you have about Satan is in this book. The only way you know how to 
defeat Satan, even though Christ has already defeated him, but to, to win those battles against the temptation that he throws at you is to be in the word. When Jesus was tempted by Satan himself, did Jesus say to Satan, when Satan said, you see all these, see all this land, all these kingdoms, I'll give them to you. And we always think Jesus could have been like, you can't give them to me, I made them. That's not what Jesus says. Why? Because they are Satan's. He does own them. He's the God of this world and the prince of this air. They're his to give away. And Jesus doesn't say, those are mine. You know what he says? Scripture. And then Satan tempts him again. And what does Jesus say? Scripture. And he tempts him again. And what does Jesus say? Scripture. Jesus knows the word. And the word is the only thing that Jesus used to resist the temptation from the evil one. Satan is incredibly clever. And he wants to destroy your life. And one of the ways he does it is he puts, is very, very unique. He knows our flesh. Even for believers, he knows our flesh. You love stuff. I don't know why. Sin. We love stuff. And so he gives us stuff. And then as Christians, we go, what? God gave it to me. Satan's like, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. He did. Yeah, keep saying that. It's good. Oh, God gave me more stuff. Yeah, yeah, he did. It's a blessing. Call it a blessing. Call it a blessing. Ooh. Oh, the Lord has blessed me. Yeah, he has. Where do you think the false gospel of the health, wealth, and prosperity comes from? It's Satan. Now, I know that, like, here we don't believe that, and I don't think anyone in this room believes in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. But, man, we like to flirt with it. Chasing those pleasures may not be as extreme as we think. Because I think for a lot of us, we go, well, I don't, I'm not, like, rich and have all this stuff, and I, like, chase the pleasures of the world, so that doesn't really apply to me. But I think it's way more subtle than we think. I've seen people leave church simply because they didn't want to be bothered, bothered to come to church every Sunday because they got vacation homes they want to go to. What? The Lord's blessed me. I have a second home. I want to enjoy it. I'm going to skip church every once in a while, especially over the summer or something, you know? Go hang out on, at my second house with all my luxuries. And, and, and so church just, I'll come, I'll, I'll be there. And then when, 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 when those types of people put their luxury before God and then they're pressed into it by the word, they leave. They fall apart. They fall away. And this is why Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved, which is an incredible little story Jesus tells. Because he says, first, it's incredibly difficult. He says, with much difficulty, a rich man goes to heaven. That should be a warning in and of itself. And then he says, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And if you're thinking, isn't the eye of a needle like this little pathway in Israel? No, that doesn't exist. It's made up. I don't know who made it up, but it's totally false. He's literally talking about a needle that you sew with. And you know how small the eye of a needle is and you know how big a camel is. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. You know what the apostles said to that? <laughs> they said what we were want to say. <laughs> they go, then who can be saved? Like, that's their response. They're like, Jesus, that's insane. You're so extreme, dude. And he's like, yeah, 
Because man can't make himself go to heaven. Jesus' response to the apostles is, well, for man it's impossible, but for God, all things are possible. I mean, the only way that that rich man can go to heaven is going to be through extreme difficulty. And, and we see Jesus example this with the rich young ruler, and he's like, sell everything. And he's like, all right, I'm out. And Jesus is like, see, proof. He didn't say, sell some of your stuff. He said, sell everything. And that guy's like, I'm out. It's an example of how hard it is because, because wealth buys us stuff. We love stuff. It's not money that we love, right? Jesus says uh, money leads to all kinds of evils. The love of money leads to all kinds of evils. Why does money lead to all kinds of evils? Because money buys you all kinds of things, and all of those things become evils when they pull our attention away from God. And the more money we have, the more things we can have, which is the opposite of how Scripture describes the Christian life, which is fully, completely, and totally sacrificial. And this is why James 5, 1 through 3 says this. Now, brace yourself if you haven't read this before. It's not easy. He says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Stop there. What did we just discuss fire is? Fire is the sanctification of life. Fire is God's sanctifying work. And what he's saying is if you think that all of these things you call wealth and prosperity and blessings are from me, then let's put them in the fire and see what lasts. Because there won't be much. And it's going to rot away and your flesh is going to die with it. Church, we are not meant to be rich. We're meant to be rich in Christ. Listen, I, I know I'm getting worked up about this. It's because I love you and I care about you. And I'm not saying if God has provided for you financial prosperity, I'm not telling you everybody has to be poor. There is a balance to all of this that I have, do not have time to explain. Okay? But I am, what I'm telling you is the more you have the greater the temptation there is for you to live a non-sacrificial life God gave to you so that you could give to others. That's what wealth is for. For the doomsday preppers, this verse is for you. Because Paul says, or James says at the end there, you have laid up treasures in the last days. Your treasures, your food storage, your ammo collection, all the things that you think you need for those tough times that might be coming, that is a severe lack of trust in God's command to live and give sacrificially like Paul and like Jesus and like every apostle in Scripture and like all the Christians in the first century. 
you have to give. What I mean is you have so that you can give. You do not need anything in the last days because nothing that you have will last in the last days. They will be devoured. And if you put your trust in those things, so will your soul. There's a reason Paul puts Demas in 2 Timothy to give us this warning. When you put your trust in stuff, because that's what money buys you, stuff, instead of God, Paul says in Romans 1, you have worshipped creation rather than the creator. Instead, what we ought to do is learn from Jesus who lived and taught in Luke 9, 57 through 58. There was a man who wanted to follow him and Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The best people in Scripture lived without. The best people in Scripture lived without. Paul said, I had many, read it last week, many days Many times, many years with nothing. And I'm content with Christ. I mean, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to give up the pleasures of this world. You have to. It's a warning all over Scripture. You have to give up the pleasures of this world. With your heart set on the promised eternal pleasures of God, if, if, this is a condition in Scripture, if you endure through being without and having very few comforts in this life other than the Lord himself. That, again, I need to put this disclaimer in here because I don't have time to explain the other side of this. That doesn't mean you only believe you have to be poor and have nothing, literally nothing, to be saved. But it's also more than, well, I have more stuff than I'll ever need, but all that matters is where my heart's at. Well, I would say, if your heart is in the right place, you will gather up your excess, and not just the excess, but also to the point where it's sacrificial to you, and give. There are so many needs in this world. There are so many Christians in need. There are so many needs in this world. Why do we think to ourselves, look at all that God has given me and I'm going to use it for, and then we think of a good reason to use it. And to be honest, some of those reasons are justified and some of them can be good. What, and I'm not saying that that could be wrong, but often it is. I'm not saying it has to be wrong, but often it is. But what I'm saying is, what if we just took that mentality, instead of flirting with the, on the line there of like that idea, what if we just did a total 180? And looked the other way and said, you know what? Instead of considering all this stuff being a oh, means for me to use somehow for God's glory, what if, but, but I still get to enjoy it all, what if I gave it all away? This is going to sound so extreme. I sold it all and then used that money to take my family to Africa. Or Vanuatu, which is a small island off of Australia where Christian and I have a good friend who serves as a missionary there. That, that community could use it. 
and millions of others. Now that sounds extreme, but I'm saying what if our mentality was extreme so that if we didn't do something that extreme, at least anything falling short of that is still holy in the sense that it's closer to that than it is closer to what James describes. At least we have a better balance. In John 16, Jesus teaches us that the world will be full of pleasures and those pleasures will be the comfort for those who seek refuge in the end of times. And they seek refuge from hardships and tribulations. But Jesus tells us there is a better way. And that better way, he says, is peace. Peace is better. Peace is better than stuff. Peace in Christ is better than stuff. John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Meaning, I give you peace while you're in the world full of tribulation. And that's all you need. That's all Paul needed. That's all Jesus needed. Jesus even said to his apostles, I don't even need bread or water. I, my, my food, my sustenance is the word of God. There is no need for taking pleasure in the world or taking refuge in the things of the world when we have all the refuge we need in the peace that we have with God in Christ. Like Demas, some have left faithfulness. And in our context today, those people who leave because they're pressed by the word of God to be pressured at all in any little bit to be a little sacrificial with all their stuff and all their money and all their possessions and even with your family. I want to put my family through the fire too. I want my kids to, to live a Christian life that isn't as comfortable as it probably is right now. I want them to feel the pressure. I want them to see the word of God come to life. I want to create for them an absolute and utter and total dependence on the word of God and in Christ alone and not on all the stuff we have. Listen, I'm preaching to myself. My life compared to more than half the people in this world is beyond luxurious. Luxurious. And when people are pressed on this point, you know what they do? They leave the church. I don't mean the church universally. I mean they leave and they go to another church. They go to a church where they are free to enjoy their worldly pleasures without sacrifice, without a pastor or church leadership, grabbing them by the collar and saying, I care so much about you spending eternity in glory. I'm going to say hard things to you. I'm going to teach you hard truths. I love you that much. The Christian life is harder than, it, than you're living because you care too much about the wrong things. And then you grab you by the collar and you say, you too. And I go, yeah, I know. Let's do it. <laughs> right? Because I'm not, I am not excused from this. I might be preaching it like I am, but listen, I'm not. I have an extremely luxurious life compared to most of the world. All of us need to put our life on the scales and start thinking about our stuff and our money and our possessions and how we treat our family. In fact, we comfort our children too much. Press! Press into their lives. And press into your own life so they see a better example. 
To those who can't handle this message, this warning stands as a condemnation. And I would say most of them aren't even here. But to us who press on, who endure, and who sacrifice in the confidence that God alone can give you peace, comfort, pleasure, and joy. Not the world, but Christ. To us, Romans 8.24 says this, we have hope. And hope is this, listen, hope is confidence in God's promise to save those who endure to the end through sacrificial obedience. And Paul says that this hope in 8.24, Romans 8.24, is expressed in sacrificial obedience, and it's what saves us. That's what he says. It saves you. doesn't mean your works save you. What he's saying is the hope that produces sacrificial obedience saves you, and that hope is Christ. So let us not be like Demas, chasing pleasures of the world. Instead, let us be like Christ, finding our peace and our hope and our joy in God, knowing that it may cost us in this life, but through endurance, we cling to the word of God with all our strength, by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit who preserves our salvation through sanctification. I'm going to say that again. We cling to the word of God with all our strength by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit who preserves our salvation through sanctification. And to those who are feeling offended by this truth, or if you're feeling a little defensive about this truth, that is called the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And he is calling you like he called Mark to return not to the pleasures of the world, but from the pleasures of the world to our Father who is ready to embrace you and to prepare you for glory that is way better than what this earth has to offer if you are willing to lay down your riches in this life and lay down the pleasures of this world for an infinitely better richness of glory and eternal pleasure in Jesus. Let's pray. We don't deserve you, Lord. We love you, Father. We thank you for your son, Jesus. All of us in this room, every single one of us, not one of us is excused from being a lover of money. We all love money. We all do. Maybe to different degrees, and maybe many of us are sacrificial with our stuff and our money and our possessions and sacrificial and don't want the pleasures of the world. But even if we're that in any way, shape, or form, there's still more in there that needs to be scraped out. Press into us, Lord. Sanctify us. Light the fire. Burn off the flesh. And let what is left be Christ and Christ alone. That we would fall at his feet and throw every crown and every possession and every treasure at his feet and say, this is yours, Lord. Do as you please. Only the Holy Spirit can enact that kind of work in your church. Convict us all. Change the nature of our hearts and minds to be sacrificially obedient. No matter what it costs, make us obey you. As you promised you would do in Ezekiel 36. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.